come today in our studies in Genesis to chapter 43, picking up in our account of the life of Joseph and his brothers, where the brothers now returning to Egypt, having gone down once and come back without Simeon, they will return today with Benjamin and all the brothers for the first time uh, in just over two decades will be reunited. We'll be reading of God's uh, work in this family today. You can find that reading if you picked up a Bible on the way in, uh, beginning on page 36 of our Cart Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter 43, we'll read the entirety of the chapter, 34 verses. And before we read, please join me again in a word of prayer, seeking God's blessing as we read. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, uh, you are kind and generous to us, far more than we uh, deserve, more than we could ever ask or think or imagine. We pray that as your word is open now before us, that you would lay our hearts open, help us to uh, mark and digest and inwardly learn uh, and to see the things of Christ as they are presented to us in your living word and presented to us by your living spirit. O Lord, make us to live uh, by the power that you work in us and help us to rejoice in who you are, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food, but if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly? as to tell the man that you had another brother. They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we'd not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds, Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present. They took double the money with them and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us 
and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. and We've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and had given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. Well, he served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Ascend the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. I wonder, uh, when was the last time that you were surprised by someone's generosity? I don't know that I remember exactly the last time, but I remember one of the first times that I was surprised by somebody's generosity. I was maybe six years old at the time, and my best friend in all the world was a boy named Nick. Nick was also six years old, and he lived at the end of my street. Anytime that my mother was working, I spent the day at Nick's house, and we got into all the normal mischief that six-year-old boys get into. Next door to Nick lived Mrs. Cowan. I didn't know much about Mrs. Cowan, but I knew that she was pretty old. She was uh, a woman who lived all by herself in a small house, probably in her 80s. She was probably somebody's great-grandmother, and I also knew that any time we tried to climb into her crabapple trees, she would come out and yell at us. Now, in my six-year-old mind, and I, I do think I've outgrown it now, uh, but in my six-year-old mind, all of those factors conspired together to make me think that Mrs. Cowan was probably just a mean, irritable old woman. And I maintained that thought about Mrs. Cowan until the day of the cake incident. I don't know how it happened, but somehow Nick and I ascertained that Mrs. Cowan had just baked a cake. Two beautiful, perfect rounds 
uh, were set out on her counter. Maybe we smelled them through an open window. I don't know how it happened. I don't remember. Uh, But we knew that she had uh, this cake that she had made. And they were there, still waiting to cool and waiting to be assembled and iced and and turned into something beautiful. And since you are aware that little boys have no shame, uh, we knocked on Mrs. Cowan's door and we said, could we have some cake? And right then and there, she cut two slices of still warm cake and handed them to us. And we ate them like pieces of pizza. We didn't have a fork or a plate. We just held them in our greedy little hands. And we ate them up. And when we were done, we said, could we have some more? (laughs) She She didn't give us any more. But she did give us that first piece. And we were astonished at her generosity. Mean old Mrs. Cowan gave us a slice of cake. And in fact, the older I got, the more astonished I was because she lived all by herself and she was not making a double layer cake for herself, I'm sure. She was making it for somebody else. Maybe she was going somewhere special. Maybe her daughter was coming to visit. Whoever that cake was for, she was willing to present it when it was all said and done with an enormous wedge missing from the cake because the two neighborhood boys who threw her crab apples at one another simply knocked on her door and said, could we have some cake? We didn't deserve that cake. We thought ill of that woman. We thought she was miserly and irritable and someone that would not give anything to these two little boys, and yet she surprised us with her generosity. Well, in our text today, the sons of Israel are surprised by generosity. Back they go, down to Egypt, and they gird their loins and they prepare for the worst. They are waiting for Joseph to find some occasion to swoop down and to assault them, it says. And instead, they're met with hospitality. Instead, they're invited to a feast that they did not deserve, thrown by a man that they thought for sure was out to get them. And there's a change that happens in the course of this chapter. There's a change in outward things, certainly. They go from hunger in Canaan to gorging themselves in Egypt, but they also go from bickering with one another and with their father in Canaan to down to Egypt, sitting around and feasting as a family and celebrating together. There's a beautiful change that happens in this family over the course of this chapter, and it all happens because God is showing them mercy. This is the key point that we need to see in Genesis 34. I'm sorry, 43, that that God Almighty is softening the hearts of these men through unexpected mercy. That is the way that he is prying open their hands to receive the plans and the purposes that he has for this covenant family. That's how we could summarize all of it, that, that God's mercy is meant to open our hands. Now I mean that in a few different ways. We'll see it in the text. First, uh, that God's mercy opens our hands to what we might have to lose. The text opens with uh, information that you already know if you've been with us for the last few weeks, that the famine is continuing in the land. The famine was severe in the land, and there were years yet of this famine to go, and yet the family is still there, and they're stalled out. They're sitting on their hands. They're watching the situation deteriorate and doing nothing. 
All because we found out at the end of chapter 42 that Jacob simply refuses to allow Benjamin to go down to Egypt. Now that's the real danger in this situation. The famine can be dealt with. There is food to be had, and all they have to do is go on a grocery run. It'll take them two weeks to get there and back. It's no big deal, but it says that Jacob delays, and the grain is running out, and their stomachs are grumbling, and Simeon is waiting in prison, and Jacob delays. You see, it was too costly to do otherwise. He thought perhaps maybe he was naive, maybe he didn't know that the, the famine was going to be as long as Joseph has already told us the famine was going to be. Maybe he thought he could wait it out, but there was simply too much to lose if it all went pear-shaped. And so they delay. And it's not until Judah offers to bear the burden of the loss that Jacob relents. Take a look at verse 9. Judah says to his father, send Benjamin with me. Put him into my hands. In verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now Judah, you notice, is pretty honest about the danger that could befall them in this trip. He's not just simply getting rid of his father's fears. Come on, Dad, nothing's going to happen. It'll be fine. We'll go. We'll come back. No big deal. Judah knows what is at stake. He knows that if they go down, there's probably a large potential that at least one of them is never returning. And he offers himself to guarantee that whatever happens down there in Egypt, that at least Benjamin, now the youngest and favored son, at least Benjamin will come back even if no one else does. And that's the language of the pledge. We don't use language like this very often anymore, but it's almost as though he's offering himself as a security deposit. He's putting himself in the hands of his father and saying, if anything goes wrong, you can take me instead. Now, that was an offer that was much better than the one that Reuben gave at the end of chapter 42. Perhaps you remember, uh, Reuben said, kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. You wonder what's wrong with this Reuben character. Grief for grief, death for death. Of course, uh, Jacob didn't want to take him up on that offer, but Judah is different. He says, take me instead. Let me bear the blame of my brother. Let me have the, the accountability and the responsibility. You see, Judah is willing to live transparently before his father. Wasn't that what was missing back in chapter 37? That Joseph was gone and all the brothers came back to their father and they stood behind this veil of secrecy and they all went, I don't know. Maybe it was an animal. Maybe he was torn to pieces. I suppose we'll never know. And there was no transparency, but now Judah is willing to say, hold me accountable, me and me only. I will be responsible for his safety and I will bring him back. He's willing to count compassion for his aged father as worth more than his own future. He is willing, in, in giving this offer, he's willing at least to suffer the loss of his reputation. He's probably willing to be disinherited as a murderer if it should come to that. And we find in chapter 44, Lord willing, we'll see next week, that Judah is willing actually to give his entire life into slavery 
so that his brother can come back. He actually meant this when he said it. He was willing to be a pledge for his brother. He's willing to give up whatever he has to give up in order that Benjamin should be safe. His hands are open to whatever he might be, be called upon to lose in this endeavor. Now, I hope you notice the change that's taken place in this man. Because if you go back to chapter 37, remember it is Judah's voice that speaks up and says, what gain is it if we kill our brother? Judah's out for profit in chapter 37. He's the one who says, it will be better for us. We'll stand to actually get something if we sell him. And everybody will get two shekels each of silver for selling our brother. And he wants what he can gain, but here he's willing to give it all up. To lose everything for the sake of another brother and for the compassion of his father. And what's changed between these two situations? Well, we remember that story in chapter 38 of Genesis. You remember how Judah was trying to protect his own youngest son. And that actually led, led to uh, all sorts of wickedness and disaster in the family. You remember the way that Judah was exposed by Tamar before everyone, and everyone knew about his deception. But the thing about chapter 38 is that chapter is given to us out of sequence. At least the whole story is out of sequence because what we find in 37 is that Joseph is taken away and then Judah in chapter 38 goes and he marries and he has children and his children are raised up and his children are married and two of them die and, and he's waiting and he's postponing and this takes some time for all of this to happen. Most scholars say it takes at least 20 years, maybe maybe 22. If it takes 22 years for all of chapter 38 to happen, that brings us to right about now. Right about now to the time of famine and loss and hard decisions. I see Judah approaches this situation in chapter 43 as someone who had learned that the Lord was merciful to him even when he didn't deserve mercy, even when he could say that I am unrighteous. And yet he knew what it was to have the Lord work in his life. He learned that when he finally submitted all that he had into the Lord's hand, he found that God was able to take away whatever was worthless in his life and to redeem what was worth keeping. Judah no longer clings to self-preservation uh, self and to deception in chapter 43. He's learned that in God's mercy, those things are worth giving up and God's mercy has opened his hands to what he might have to lose. Actually, the Lord has opened Jacob's hands as well, because it's after Judah speaks that Jacob finally relents. Finally, he allows Benjamin to go. And Jacob's not naive about the danger either. He knows that something serious could happen on the way down, and so he goes to every human length that he can to try and secure the safety of his family. He says, take back the money, take a little present, take a little hum, a little, a little honey, a little gum, a little balm, a little myrrh, spices, and the best produce of the land, which, by the way, were some of the same things that the Midianite traders carried down with them to take Joseph to Egypt. Take the things that will, will speak of the, uh, the abundance of Canaan, whatever's left after this famine. Take it down and, and present it to him. But in the final estimation, what Jacob does is that he surrenders his family into the hands of the God of covenant mercy. Take a look at verse 14. 
May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And he'd ask Jacob, where does security really come from? Does it come from a gift? A little honey, a little balm, a little myrrh, a little spice? Where is mercy to be found? Is it in a compassionate ruler in a foreign land who will look well upon your children? Or is it to be found in the hands of God Almighty? Is mercy to be found with El Shaddai? That's a, a special name. That's why the ESV gives you the footnote there. That what he says is, may El Shaddai grant you mercy. Now that name only shows up in Genesis three times before this occurrence. And each one is a pivotal moment in the lives of God's people. It shows up for the first time in Genesis chapter 17 when God gives the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. This is what he says. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. That's the first time it shows up, God Almighty. The second time it shows up is when Jacob himself is sent out of the land by his father because his brother wants to kill him. And so he's sent to live with Laban. And Isaac invokes a blessing on Jacob. And he says, God Almighty bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply you. That you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. And then the last time it shows up before now, before chapter 43, is when Jacob comes back, a company of peoples from Paddan Aram, from living with Laban, and he enters back into Bethel, the place where the Lord had appeared to him at first, and God appears again, and God says to him, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Do you know anything consistent, consistent there in each of those three references? Did you see anything? It's the mention of multiplication. Be fruitful and multiply, God says uh, to Abraham. It says it to Jacob as well, and again to Jacob. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And this is the promise that stretched all the way back through the generations of his family who had been called from this God to come out of a foreign land and to be settled in their own place in a secure nation and a separate people to be God's covenant family. And he invokes this covenant name and this promise upon his sons. And he says, this is where mercy is to be found, the God of promise. And because he knows this God of promise, because he knows the God of mercy, he's able to do something that he is not able to do at the end of chapter 42. What does he say at the end of chapter 42? I will not let my son go down. You have bereaved me, and so I will hold as tightly to Benjamin as I can possibly hold. What does he say at the end of chapter 37? All of his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort Jacob and he refused to be comforted and said, no, I will go down mourning for my son to Sheol. And it's not until he remembers and he invokes the covenant promise of the God of mercy upon his sons that he finally opens his hands and it sounds like resignation, but this is a big move for Jacob. If the Lord should take even my sons, then so be it. And he surrenders his family into the hands of God Almighty. 
this prayer by Jacob, this is the moment in the circus act where they remove uh, that safety net. And the acrobat simply has to trust that the other performer is going to catch them on the other side of the trapeze. You see, Jacob and Judah have hands that are open to whatever they might lose. They're willing, <clears throat> excuse me, they're willing to submit themselves to the mercy of God. That's a hard thing to do. It doesn't matter what God calls you to give up or what you might stand to lose when you entrust yourself to him. It might be that like Judah, what you have to lose are a few things that you never should have been holding on to in the first place. Secrecy and sin. Those little things that allow you to feel like you have some modicum of control over your frantic life. There's always some self-indulgence that you can hide by the side and you can shelter yourself under until the storm passes over. And it's always there. It's always welcoming you. It's always there for you to be a comfort to you. And what would you give up? Excuse me. What would you stand to lose if you were to give up this secret sin that you love so much? Oh, you know it has no place in your life. Where else would you find comfort Where else would you find wholeness? And can you entrust yourself to the God who calls you to loosen your grip on the sin that makes you feel safe? It might be, though, that like Jacob, what you stand to lose is a lot more precious. It's a lot more wholesome, really. It's it's plans for your family and for your future. Good things that you're looking forward to, your desires for marriage or at least for a marriage that doesn't feel like it's a prison sentence. It's not a sin issue, it's a circumstance issue, but still the anxiety is there. Is God able to hold on to the things that matter to you with the same care that you can give them with your own two hands? Can you open your hands to God Almighty? You can if you know His mercy. You can if you know what God was willing to lose to gain you to himself. Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you see, God's mercy is what opens our hands to what we might lose. It also opens our hands to what God is able to give to us. When the brothers finally get down to Egypt, it appears that their worst-case scenario is actually coming true. Because there they are, standing before this man that they feared so much, and the unexpected happens, and he invites them to his own home. And the men are suspicious. Actually, verse 18, you notice it says that they are afraid. Rightly so, I think. Because at this point in the story, we know what Joseph is doing. We know that he is working for their good and for their blessing, but these brothers still have no idea. They don't see that yet, and they don't see that goodness and that blessing. All they see is the sin that has been exposed in their lives. All they see is the sin that, uh, the silver, I'm sorry, a godly woman who can find, thank you, dear. All they can see is the silver that showed up in their packs and made them look like scoundrels. And from all outward appearances, it appears as though they are thieves. And why should this man give anything to these brothers? Excuse me. 
You know, we have a children's book at home that, that my kids like. It begins this way. It's called The Gruffalo. <clears throat> it says, A mouse took a walk in a deep, dark wood, and a fox saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come, have lunch in my underground house. Now, if you are a little brown mouse walking through a wood and you receive an invitation to lunch from a fox, you should be wary. And if you are the sons of Israel and you go down to Egypt and a foreign dignitary says, come, you're going to eat with me today. Nobody else is going to be there, but you'll be there and all of my men will be there. Come and, and have lunch at my house. You should be wary. And they are. They're afraid that they're going to be assaulted. They're afraid they're going to be enslaved, completely ruined. Even their donkeys will be taken as slaves. Do you notice? It shows us that one last little thing. We're going to become slaves, and he'll even take our donkeys. This is the, the nth degree. Nothing could be worse. And they are afraid. Because they feared that Joseph's generosity was really a facade. He must have some sinister ulterior motive behind what he's offering to us. This can't be what's actually happening to us. Interestingly, I think this is the same reason that many people reject the offer of the gospel. The Lord offers to bring us into his fold and, and to provide for us. What did we confess together today? Where is Christ? He in our nature visibly went up into the highest heavens there to receive gifts from men, to raise up our affections and to prepare a place for us. And this offer that seems too good to be true, he's going to provide for us, he's going to give us spiritual nourishment and life in him. But then we consider how unworthy we are of receiving such generosity and we think there's got to be some catch. There's probably fine print somewhere in the back, in the margin. It's after the, the, the concordance, because nobody reads that. It's back there somewhere, and it must say something like, this offer, uh, not available in all locations and subject to availability and an extensive background check that nobody can clear. And we say, there's no way this is actually what the Lord is offering to us. There must be some ulterior motive. Maybe God is trying to rope us into some grand set of regulations. Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. He's trying to enslave us because we think that God is as miserly with his gifts as we tend to be with ours. We only give them to those that, that really deserve them or those that can pay us back in some way or we give them in such a way, you probably know someone like this, uh, that gives you a gift and then consistently reminds you of the gift that they gave you. Remember that? Oh, it was nice, wasn't it? You really enjoyed that, didn't you? How is it holding up? Is it good? Is it still all right? We think that God is going to do that, that he's going to pull the rug out from under us. And this is what the brothers are expecting from Joseph. They're suspicious. They are guilty, and they are going to be caught. So what do they do? Well, they try to clear their guilt through gift and payment. It's just a little bit of legalistic wrangling. And it all happens on the porch before they can even get inside. Notice uh, verse 19. They went up to the steward of Joseph's house. They spoke to him at the door of the house. Before we can get in, before we can take you up on this offer, we've got to get one thing clear. They can't enter the palace and they can't be at ease until they have produced something that is able to justify themselves. 
Why should they be worthy to receive anything from Joseph? And so they say, look, we've brought the money. We even have a gift. We went above and beyond. Maybe this will make us right with Joseph. They attempt to legitimize why they should receive anything from this man at all. This is the opposite error. Spiritually speaking, this is the opposite error from the one that we just looked at. We were just speaking about the anxiety that tempts us to think that we can secure our own future and our own blessedness by holding on to the things that matter to us. That's not the only error we face in dealing with the Lord and his mercy, though, because we're also faced with a suspicion and a a cynicism about what God will give to us. And we think that what we have to do is to make ourselves worthy by what we can produce, not just what we can hold on, but what we can produce. What can we do for God? How can we prove that we are good enough for these things? And and these brothers are trying to eliminate their fear by earning whatever good things Joseph was able to give them. And their hands are closed to his hospitality and to his generosity. They can't actually receive anything from Joseph because they're too hung up on what they can contribute to him. And this is the problem that we have sometimes as well. What's the solution, friends, to our suspicion and our cynicism over God's mercy, over God's gift? Well, it's simply to understand how undeserving we are and how the Lord delights to give gifts to those who do not deserve it. That's what mercy is. If we could deserve God's mercy, we wouldn't call it mercy. We'd call it payment. We'd call it fair play. But that's not what the steward reminds them of. Look at verse 23. They are afraid. And the steward replied to them, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Shalom, he says. Put your suspicions at ease. Let down your guard. Come in and receive. Why? Because the God of your father has done all this for you. He doesn't point them to Joseph. He points him beyond Joseph. Do you understand what's happening here? This is the way that an Egyptian pagan, someone who at least seems to have been instructed in Joseph's house, this is the way that he mirrors the name El Shaddai, the God of your father. He's given you things you don't deserve. He is merciful. He's not waiting to hold it over your head and to see if you can measure up. You didn't deserve it, you couldn't produce it, but he gives it just the same. And you notice that every single one of their fears is overturned. They thought that they were going to be assaulted, and instead they're brought in and they're given water for their feet. They're given hospitality. They thought they were going to be enslaved, and instead their brother is released. They thought their donkeys were going to be taken away, and their donkeys are fed. Every single fear they had is overturned by the God of their father showering mercy upon them that they don't deserve. And it's all given to them. It's all done for them even though they didn't deserve it. And these brothers left with their father pleading the mercy of El Shaddai in their ears and they show up in Egypt and quite unexpectedly they're comforted by treasure from the God of their father and peace and mercy. Dear friends, if you are ever suspicious about God's offer to provide for you, remember his mercy. Remember that Jesus came to heal the sick, 
not to just visit with the well. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to prove the love of the Father in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us. And so if you are suspicious over God's offer, remember his mercy. Remember his mercy and open your hands to what he can give. Finally, though, God's mercy opens our hands to rejoice with one another. Now here, we're going to jump all the way down to that last verse that seems so tricky. It says that all the brothers drank and were merry with him, and yes, the footnote is probably correct. Yes, that means that the brothers probably became intoxicated together. Yes, it probably means that they all let themselves go a little bit too much, but the point is not to tell us that there is a virtue in overindulgence. The point is simply to give us a small picture of the way that all of these brothers were able to receive together the abundance of the feast that was there. It wasn't just a little meal, but there was much more than they needed, much more, and they ate and they drank together. And what a grand celebration it was. Now, I I suppose that's what you do when you dine with a dignitary. If I am ever invited to a a fancy dinner at the Russian embassy, I don't think that I will be, uh, but I am going to prepare myself to gorge on caviar and those tiny little pickles. That's what you do. Well, when you're taken down to Egypt and you're brought into Joseph's home, this is what you do. When the fattened calf is put on to roast, you prepare to eat. And when the wine is poured, you drink. And you all sit there together and you all celebrate together. That's what you do. But that is not normally what these brothers do. Do you notice the small details? They're all brought in. And they're all set down in front of him. Actually, the Hebrew is a little bit more explicit. It basically says that Joseph sat them down. You sit here. And you sit here. And you know when you go to that wedding ceremony and you're looking at all the place cards when you come in and you're hoping that your name is going to have a 2 or a 3 next to it and it says 35. And you know you're way down there. That's what happens. And he seats them each. And it's not just the oldest. It says the firstborn. He starts with Reuben. He acknowledges his preeminence over his brothers. You sit in the place of honor, Reuben. And one by one, they're each seated. This is pretty nice. It's pretty astonishing, actually, because these guys aren't teenagers. They're middle-aged men. And sometimes, forgive me, it's hard to look at two men, one who's 46 and one who's 48, and tell which one is older. But Joseph gets it. Every single one, they're astonished. It's this this little detail that almost gives it all away. It's too accurate. But there they are, lined up in order, and then the food is brought out. Reuben was probably first. The place was set before him, and it was overflowing. And there's meat, and there's bread, and there's fruit, and there are delicacies that they have probably never seen before, stuff that they don't even know how to begin to eat. And one after another, each man receives the same thing, this overabundance of provisions. And then it's Benjamin's turn. And they bring out his plate, and they set it before him. And then they bring out another plate, 
straight from the table of Joseph, and they set it before him. And then the waiters come with three more plates, and you imagine them parading past Reuben and Simeon and Levi on the way down to the end of the table, setting it before him, and there's no room left for Benjamin even to set his glass down because there's so much food on Benjamin's end of the table. It is an all-you-can-eat buffet for ten men set before the youngest brother. And you see what Joseph is doing, don't you? He's replaying their father's favoritism. What would have happened in this banquet scene if this would have happened 22 years ago? Now, well, maybe Judah would have lost his appetite. Issachar might have been the rude one and just got up and excused himself. Reuben would sit there and mutter under his breath, and I'm not going to eat with that little... But there's an enormous amount of grace in the end of this because this is the next test of the brothers. It's the opportunity to confirm whether the Lord has been at work in them. Are they going to feast like a family or are they going to let envy turn their stomachs? There's a curious thing about envy. Uh, Cornelius Plantiga, he's a uh, philosopher. He says it this way. He says that envy is a much nastier sin than mere covetousness. Because what an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. And that's what these brothers used to want. You know, when they threw Joseph in the pit, they didn't cast lots to see who would get the nice coat. They destroyed it. They didn't want the coat. They didn't want the favoritism. They just didn't want Joseph to have it. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that. Some brother or sister in Christ has received the blessings that you wish the Lord had given to you. God has blessed them with the family that you always wanted. Job that you always wanted the health that you no longer have, the social skills that you wanted, the faith that you wanted, the peace and the assurance and, and what seems to be a spiritual abundance that you can only dream of. And you sit there and you look at them and it appears that their portion is at least five times as big as yours. And your hands have been opened the whole time, but the Lord has not filled them in the way that you thought he was going to. And you want to rejoice in what the Lord has done for them, but you're too busy noticing what God has withheld from you. I wonder if you've ever been in that situation. And what do you do with that envy? How do you deal with it? I bet that all of these brothers could give you the laundry list of the ways that their lives did not turn out the way they expected. Zebulun's son, he should have been at university now, but he's not. And Dan, well, you know, his marriage is a little bit rocky. Here's a car, his back bothers him. And whatever it is, they could, they could list for you all of their disappointments and all of their problems and a whole host of failed opportunities. And yet at this moment, as they're sitting around this table that had been prepared for them in pure, undeserved generosity, all of that fades away when they finally came to realize that this has all been prepared for them in mercy, they, they realized that there was nothing missing. 
Nobody was worried that they'd been passed over. They know that they might not have as much as the person next to them, certainly not as much as dear old Benjamin over there. But they did know that they had enough because they had mercy and it was free and it was full and it was undeserved. And it allowed them to rejoice together rather than being so hung up on what the Lord had not provided for them. Dear friends, this is what we find at the table of Christ. A banquet prepared for you that none of you deserve. Your pastor doesn't deserve it either, by the way. None of us worthy to come and to receive of the grace and the gift that the Lord has given to his people in Jesus Christ. But the Lord has given mercy. And he's given hospitality and a promise that he has gone to prepare a place for us where he will come and take us to be with him where he is to give us a feast of well-aged wine and rich food and given in abundance. And he gives us mercy to open our hands to what we can lose and what he can give and how we can rejoice together. Won't you pray with me and we'll come and feast together at the Lord's table. Let's pray. Gracious Lord our God, Abundant in mercy and steadfast love, you who give to those who do not deserve, we thank you for your grace and your abundance poured out in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would have us to know what a blessing it is to receive uh, generously from your hand, even though we don't deserve anything from you. Keep us, O Lord, looking to you and to your mercy and not to uh, what our hands can hold on to, not to what uh, makes us feel safe and secure in this life. Help us to look to you and to receive life and forgiveness and abundance in Jesus Christ through faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.